0: As you may be seated, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. feels a little strange to not be opening to Romans, but we'll pick up Romans in the new year. It's going to be interspersed. Uh, it's kind of interesting that as we're doing Romans in reverse, uh, we started with chapter 16 and we're down to 14 and moving down to 13 and 12, and uh, 13 has a lot to do with uh, how we interact with those in authority over us. And uh, that'll be part of the theme for the new year is how we do that interaction, how we live at peace with all men, especially those who are in the Christian community. But today we're beginning our first service of Advent. Uh, We're looking at the golden prophecies. I call them the prophetic clues. As we were testifying, I appreciated your boldness. Uh, There are hundreds of these prophetic clues. Uh, It is not just one sporadic thing that you're hanging on to throughout the the whole 39 books of the Old Testament. God told us again and again and again and again, and if you know what I'm going to say next, and again, that there was going to be something good coming. There was going to be a, a, uh, we call it the archetype for all the types. There was going to be a fulfillment. ...of something that needed to come. And today as we look at the book of Matthew... ...we're opening up to this, uh, this, this great book. It's one that uh, almost everybody begins with... ...because it's the first book of the New Testament after 400 silent years. So uh, we are, if you bring up the word cloud, we are a Bible-believing church. This is something we're not ashamed of. Uh, we talk about the gospel being priority because the gospel is the good news that's found in the word of God. That's why we're gospel-driven. Uh, in fact, if you remember on the, on the bulletin card on the back, you can see that our mission and vision has to do with communicating this gospel. By our words, by our deeds, and with our passions, to ourselves, to our neighbors here, and to the world through our missionaries, so that the wonders of God's grace in Christ might be known. Uh, And that is really, we want Jesus to be lifted up. We want all kinds of people to hear the good news. The book of Matthew is one of those books. It was not the first book written in the New Testament. Most scholars will argue that it's either the book of James or the book of Galatians. Uh, The book of Matthew appears to be written about in the 60s, the early 60s. Uh, And that would mean it would put it about three decades after Jesus died, was buried, when he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven on Ascension Sunday. It was about three decades or 30 years later that Matthew ends up giving us this book. This is God's word. Let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inspired, uh, that it is inerrant uh, and it is infallible in its originals. Let us look to the scriptures. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1. Uh, little portions of it, and I'll be touching a lot more. So if you have your Bibles, please keep them open. Sometimes they'll appear behind me, but we are going to expose what's in the Word of God so that you might listen more intently to the very speaking of the Spirit so that you might know that you've been in the presence of the living and true God. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, the scripture says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place... To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, which said, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel," which means God with us. God with us. Now that is the portion from Matthew chapter 1. You can see right from the beginning, Matthew is telling us about Jesus. And he's telling us about what the prophets have told us. Did you notice the prophetic clues? That's one of them, where he quotes from Isaiah 7, 14. Now, if I take you through towards the end of the book, chapter 24 and 25, you're going to find that Matthew, the same guy, is now telling us a little bit more about the Messiah's coming. In verse 30 of chapter 24, then then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Same Matthew talking about the same Jesus But let's continue on in chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. Uh, This continues on in some of the the speaking of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in glory, with all his angels with him, then he will sit on on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say... To those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the main emphasis of this passage. Come, you who are blessed by the Father, by my Father, and come and inherit this kingdom that is prepared for you. Matthew tells us an awful lot. Let me finish up that text because some people didn't quite understand it and maybe you didn't either. But he goes on to say, for when I was hungry, you gave me food. This is Jesus speaking. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Wow. Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, this is what you've done. You've practiced what was preached. But then he goes on to say, then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And when did we see when, when did we feed you? When did we give you thirst? When you, were, when, did, when you were thirsty? When did we give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or when did we see you without clothes? And when did we see you sick? And when were you in prison? Now, if you look at those verses, it's very, very interesting how uh, the text in, uh, in verses 37 through 39, they raise a great question. Huh? It's almost like Jesus said these words and they were listening in a different language. They almost repeat them verbatim, but they can't see how it connects to their earthly life. Then the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Isn't it interesting how Matthew is teaching from, from Christ's own words, the same things we were learning from Romans in the past weeks. How do we get along with those around us? He says, to the ones on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me no food. Uh, he says, I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. In other words, I came to church and nobody greeted me. Now, That's not exactly the same. When I was not dressed well, you did not give me the clothes. When I was sick and in prison, you did not come and visit me. And then they're answering, they look to Jesus, the people on the left that he's implying. He says, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or or in prison and, and did not minister to you? And Jesus would answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will bless the reading of the word today. I pray that you will give us encouragement from the text of scripture. As we look at Matthew's uh, testimony, I pray that we might begin to echo it from our own experience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. this is a different type of sermon, but all the applications are, in a sense, the same. Because what happens is that when you become a Christian, when you are in Christ, behold, old things passed away and all things become new. It's never the same. Now, how does it, how does it apply to your daily life? Some of you, uh, when we were run, wanting you to write your Thanksgiving uh, blessings or your, bless, your Thanksgiving humor moments or even your, your Thanksgiving uh, grief Uh, Put it on one of those leaves. We're trying to help you to reflect, where are you? What are you experiencing? And share it with the body of Christ. But in this particular text, uh, I'm taking you to the whole book of Matthew. Because if you follow along on the bulletin card, there is an emphasis, as I've got right here, on uh, the the different focuses of each sermon. So on the one Sunday, we're focusing uh, on the five narratives, the gold, the white, the green, the purple, the red. But we're also going to be preaching ...to you through the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. But I'm not necessarily just looking at their books. I want to look at their their communication, their testimony. How do you know what what they said? Well, most of what we're going to reference is what they put in their books... But there also is some, uh, some other commentary that comes from different people in the New Testament that spoke about these characters. Today, we're looking at Matthew. And, and uh, Matthew says, let me show you. It's really kind of neat. Matthew seems to be eager as he writes his book. He says, I want to show you these things. And this disciple is communicating the prophetic clues so that people like you and me might know about it later. As I begin, I'm trying to give you a little bit of the context. But first, let me explain some terms. Uh, the, the term Advent, as we begin this Advent season, simply is not a biblical word. So those of you who are saying, why are you celebrating Advent? It would be like saying, why do you believe in the Trinity? It's not found in the Greek New Testament because it doesn't have a Greek foundation. Uh, but it does have a Latin foundation. It means coming. So when we are dealing with the Advent, we're talking about the coming of the Lord. We're talking about the coming, His arrival. Now, there's another word that, uh, that I often use uh, that you might hear during this season about the parousia. The parousia. That does have a Greek terminology, and that means the appearing, that the substance of God becomes visible to your eyes. The appearing. Now, these are both great concepts, and they are, de- they are developed in the New Testament, and let me tell you, if you take away the coming of Christ, if you take away the appearance of Christ, what do you have left in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul wouldn't have had anything to write about because he would, have never, he would have never met Jesus on Acts chapter 9 and he would have never written all of the epistles that he wrote. He would have never, he would have never had anybody write to the, to the people in Rome and you would have never had the book of Romans. All of this stems because Jesus came. That's why one of the greatest verses that is so popular around the world uh, is, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he... Gave His only begotten Son. Now, if you, if I, let me just put it in language for you, God loved by sending Jesus. Jesus loved by coming to this creation. As Michael Card put it, the Eternal One steps into time. It's pretty amazing. The Creator becomes a part of His creation. This is so amazing that you can't skip it. And when you come to Christmas, I want you guys all to see it. These candles here, they draw your attention to the five narratives, as I've mentioned. They offer hope and a future and a culmination, an archetype to the images and a redemption that had only been anticipated up to this time. During, as I say, during this month, we're going to be focusing, uh, during the next five services, I want you to really look at this appearing. I want you to, to gaze But if you look at the front of the bulletin, or front of the card there, you're going to see the verse from Acts 1.11, these men of Galilee, why do you stand just gazing? I don't want you to just be stuck in the gazing mode, but I don't want you to miss it. Would you have liked to have been there when Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, when his feet left the ground and somebody flew without wings? I think we all would have stood there gawking the eyes as big as could be. There was something changing. Jesus had come, and now he is going. And that going aspect is a little bit hard for us to digest because all of us want him to come. And hence, the phrasing this year is the second advent, when he comes again. So I'm hoping that you get the terminology down. We're going to be lurk- looking at some of the facets of the coming of Christ into his, in, into his creation. Uh, just think about the word incarnation. It's a big theological term, but it just simply means from the word carnivorous, it means flesh. Okay? You get the idea that Jesus came into flesh. Before this time, Jesus had not had a, a, a body like us. But as Philippians chapter 2 talks about, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he took on mankind. He took on flesh. The incarnation is so significant. It was a part of the plan that he would personally come and make a parousia, an an appearing. Okay. Now, the other part is that um, I wanted to be able to tell you that if you had been alive during, uh, let's say, 100 years before Jesus came... You know, that would be A.D. 4, back it up 100 years, maybe A.D. Uh, 104. What would you have been hoping for? Some of you may not know the history of God's people, uh, but God's people were dealing with a lot of difficulty during those 400 silent years. And even before that, because you can talk to the prophets and you can see how judgment came, how there was a famine in the land. There was a, When the prophets would come, people would shy away from them. They didn't like anybody that said, thus says the Lord. Because usually he was going to tell them they were wrong. He was going to tell them that God was going to bring judgment. And of course in the Old Testament with the prophetic era, we knew that they were put into exile, but God's grace was still there that he brought them back because the whole Old Testament era was preserving a lineage for the son of David. The New Testament is a little bit different twist because the son of David has come. So we were waiting and anticipating for him to come. Now he's come and things are different. But if you're following along with me, a hundred years before Christ came, hmm, you were hoping for something to change. You were hoping that there would be a prophetic clue fulfilled from Genesis chapter 3, the very one that Eve was so excited about after she ate the forbidden fruit, after she realized what happens to you when you've sinned. And all of you, any experience with sin? Well, once she ate the fruit, she kind of knew what sin was all about, and she knew what was due to sin. The the wages of sin is death. She knew it right there, even before Paul wrote uh, Romans chapter 5. Separation from God's grace. When she ate that fruit, it was like, uh uh-oh. When we have sin in our lives, we have to deal with the same thing. But God gave her hope, and that was that he says, I will deal with this sin. There's going to be justice served. But then he gave them hope. He says, I will put enmity. This is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and, and between Satan and between mankind. There's going to be a battle. There's, one's going to get a crushing blow to the head, and one is going to be uh, severely hurt with the heel. But then he ends up saying, hey, we're on the winning side. And he said, there's going to be one born of a woman. At this point, there had not been any babies born. They didn't didn't need any maternity wards. They didn't even need any hospitals at that time. But even before all that, God told her by a prophetic clue that there was going to be one born of a woman who would crush the evil one. The golden clue that everybody's been looking for. When is he going to come? when Eve had her first baby, and and that was pretty cool. I imagine, I imagine it was pretty traumatic for Adam. This little baby shows up. They didn't have any Lamaze classes. They didn't have any of that other stuff. But all of a sudden, you know, he had seen be fruitful and multiply. He understood this was God's will. And the baby comes, and they say, this is the one. He came. They thought Cain was Jesus. She was so excited and then so disappointed i want to encourage you to see through all of this kind of stuff as we look at the value of the coming of the lord now if you're following along with our in with our uh, fourth point today the sermon is not very heavy but it is going to be kind of like a book sermon i want to be able to cover almost the whole book of matthew today because we're looking at this disciples communications The first thing you're going to see is the experience of Matthew regarding the coming. Second, we're going to see the explanations from Matthew's record uh, regarding Christ's coming. And third, we're going to see some excerpts uh, of the the Christ in Matthew's gospel regarding his next coming. You'll see how it all fits together like puzzle pieces. First, I want to take you to Matthew 9.9. And if you have your Bibles open, you can turn there and see that Matthew is just a person like you and me. Matthew wasn't super special in the sense that, uh, you know, he didn't have a degree from a special university. You know, he was probably, um, he was just kind of a a blue-collar worker. He was was just an average Joe. In Acts chapter 9, or excuse me, in in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. It's kind of cool. This is Matthew telling us the story of Matthew. This is Matthew's experience. Now, if you go to the book of Luke or go to the book of Mark, you're going to find that they don't call him Matthew there. They call him Levi. And they do say that he was out there collecting taxes. And so there's a couple of things that you want to get uh, by way of, of his experience uh, that this was pretty significant. But I want you to be able to, to, to see the bigger picture. I, try, I already began to paint it for you. First, we are introduced to, to Matthew uh, when, when Matthew was, was a young guy. Jesus is about 30 years of age because in Matthew 9, we find that Jesus has started his ministry... Matthew ends up being called by him when he's up in Capernaum uh, and he's probably up there because John the baptizer has just been put in jail and he's going to be beheaded soon. Now, when you realize that he's up there in the Capernaum area, which is by the Sea of Galilee, you know, this is not where the highfalutin hoi polloi hang out. This is where the average, the average person that lived in that region, you know, they, they were, I want to call them simple folk. This is where Levi meets Jesus. And he starts to try to make sense of this character. He didn't know a whole lot about Jesus. So let's think about what he did know. If, if Jesus was about 30 years old, I believe that, that this guy, being a tax collector, was probably a little younger. Uh, I, I picture him as being 18 to 22. In that young age, he's just been recruited by the government to be one of the turncoats. What do I mean? Listen, this is during the time when the Romans were in authority. And and if you wanted to have a secure government job, you went and worked as a tax collector. Because where did the taxes go? They went to Rome. They were the IRS of that day. And so here you have a Jew who's collecting money from Jews. How many people really think that would have loved this guy? The one good thing about this job, it paid well and uh, since he had favor with the romans nobody could make accusations against him because rome was on his side and and so if he skimmed a little bit more or whatever as long as rome didn't know about it uh, he was still pretty secure you can learn that story from zacchaeus but anyway in in uh, you can just picture this young man let's call him 20 years old matthew is meeting jesus and what does he know about the jesus well Matthew is growing up in a culture there in in the Galilee area that has been devoid of good preaching for not 100 years, not 200 years, not 300 years, but 400 years plus. It's been a long time since God sent somebody to, to preach to those people and to be able to give the revelation from the Father to us. There was a famine Matthew is growing up, Levi is growing up in this era saying, well, I know my folks say there's a God, I know it's part of our ancestral history, but we wonder if there is a God at all. Oh yeah, there's this this hope that we're all supposed to have, that this is going to be, that things are going to get better because there's going to be this Messiah coming. The Jewish community had just been struggling to exist. And I want you to know that that's where Matthew ends up meeting Jesus. It tells us, uh, his experience of Matthew also tells us the setting into which this young man saw. It was not just the tyranny of politics, but it was also the tyranny of society. The people that didn't like Matthew the most were the religious people. The folks that went to church. They they technically went to the temple, of course. They didn't have the regular church buildings like us. They would call it the synagogues because they were some of the local places. But when you came to Jerusalem and you got to the temple, you would end up seeing folks that would look at Matthew and say, "Mm, mm, mm." they probably would use some other choice words. But it was as a child, he would have experienced this Roman rule. Growing up, seeing the Roman soldiers, he would have seen the eagle on the stick in front of their, uh, in, in front of their uh, soldiers when they come marching through. It, they would have seen who was in charge and who wasn't. Christ called him Matthew was radical. Matthew has been living his life, he's been, like I said, about two decades of just doing what works, you know, he's trying to get by, he's got a stable job, and then this guy named Jesus shows up. What do you think you would do if Jesus showed up to you and said, follow me? I've got jobs i got to do, I can't leave that, oh, this is so important. <laughs> when you meet Jesus, you realize what important really is. And this is why when we, when we see the experience of Matthew, it is kind of encouraging to us. He ends up becoming the author of this gospel. His name is known by almost everybody that's familiar with the Bible, being the first book of the New Testament. Uh, it is one of the gospels that is one of the longest. Some of the quotes in there are known only by Matthew, and then we don't even know them from other people. We really value Matthew, and yet he was just one of the disciples. It's kind of interesting that one other thing you see about Matthew is that Matthew looks at things a little different from some of the other authors of the New Testament. Being that he was a Jew, being that he was familiar with a little bit of the Jewish heritage with the hope that one day somebody would come that would deliver them from the the, uh, tyranny of of whatever their taskmaster was of the day, he was familiar with some things in the Old Testament. How do I know this? Because if you go through the book of Matthew, you're going to find over and over and over that he says that it was done to fulfill what the prophet had said. You already saw it in, in, uh, in, in chapter 1, where he talks about the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. Uh, I mean, all of this is exactly from Isaiah seven fourteen, where it says, Behold, a young woman will conceive and bring forth a son. It's really cool. It's really cool how Matthew knew the Old Testament. He knew the golden oldies. He was aware of these prophetic clues. It was his experience. And that's why when, 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 um, when you look at, at Matthew, he looks to the coming one a little different from some of the others. From the very beginning, if you have your Bibles open and you look at Matthew, you're going to find that he ends up introducing Jesus as the son of who? As the son of David. David. Um, It's really, really neat when you realize how all of this comes to unfold uh, in in chapter one, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So if if you pick up on those two characters, are there any other more important people in the Jewish community? Probably not. But he doesn't put Abraham first, he puts David first, because he's looking for someone who is going to conquer. He's looking for the one who will sit on the throne of his father, David. And so it's really cool how when he writes this 30 years after Jesus ascended, the focus is on Christ, who will be the king. And so you find that that when when you start getting the explanation of things in chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things behold God's angel the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying Joseph you son of David do not fear to take Mary as your wife even though she's pregnant for what is conceived in her is from above from the Holy Spirit and she's going to have a boy you see, this is where you see the prophetic clues starting to unfold. And even from the beginning of his book, you can see how, how this man, Matthew, was captured by the Old Testament clues. This is the one from Genesis 3. He's the one. And in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken in the prophets. It's really wonderful when you begin to realize how it all comes to pass. Now, I want to do the explanations now quickly. The explanations of Matthew's account. Matthew explains the first coming with that unique perspective. As I've already begun to tell you, he's talking about a king that's coming. The other ones don't talk about it quite the same. If you go to Mark, it's the servant. If you go to Luke, it's the great perfect man. If you go to John, you get Jesus God in the flesh. The incarnation but when you look at matthew you get the ruler the one who will lead it's really quite beautiful matthew explains the first coming with this special insight and he tells us some things that nobody else tells us because he's wanting us to take notice of the coming king joseph's role nobody else knows about joseph did any of you know about joseph's attitude did you know that joseph was a righteous man did you know that Joseph wanted to have a divorce? Well, the only way you know about that is because Matthew reveals it by way of the working of the Holy Spirit in him. He tells us these little insights. Why is Joseph even significant? Because when you understand the lineage, you're going to find out that Joseph is where the authority comes from. And so when you, when you read Matthew chapter 1, you see that, that, uh, the explanation of, of the authority. And verse 17 of chapter 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. The whole point that he's trying to say is, hey, this guy is a descendant of David, who was a descendant of Abraham. That means he's a Jew, but he's going to be the one that sits on the throne of his father, David. All of this is explained by Matthew, the insignificant one. He knew about the coming, and he explains it for us in the twenty-eight chapters that we get. Uh, he explains the Magi's role. We only know about the wise men, the wise, because uh, because Matthew tells us. If you look there at the beginning of chapter two, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, behold, wise men came. Did Luke tell us about them? No. How about Mark? No. Did John? No. Did Paul? No. Did Peter? No. Only Matthew. Now, some of you are saying, well, who cares? Matthew wanted you to see that Jesus' coming was, was that a king was showing up. Somebody that was worthy of being noticed by other leaders, by other, other states, by other uh, magistrates. It's really quite interesting. Matthew further explains that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So when you start looking through the book of Matthew, over and over, you're going to find that, that Micah 5.2, that's quoted from, uh, out of you, Bethlehem, will come this little one. How do we know about this? Because Herod, the king, was going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem because when they found out from the Old Testament prophets that that's where the baby was going to be born, out of the little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent, silent stars go by, but yet in thy dark street shineth this everlasting life. There's one born, the one that was prophesied. He's coming, he's coming, he's here. And Matthew also further explains that the first coming included the accomplishment that exceeded the arrival. Now, this is like extra words, but I had to explain it like this. Most of us think about the coming when somebody arrives. If you could have been at our house right before Thanksgiving, uh, Tracy and I stayed up past midnight, and it wasn't because we were waiting for Santa to come. Okay, if you know the storyline, we got kids coming from Georgia, we got kids coming from uh, uh, from from where? From Pittsburgh. We got kids coming from where else? Lynchburg. Do we have any other kids coming? Okay, from Milford. Yeah, we got them all over the place coming. But I can tell you the reason we stayed up is because the journey for some of them kept them up into the night, coming in at 1 o'clock, coming in at at 1230, whatever the case. We were waiting for the arrival, and it was all about the arrival. Because once the arrival comes, then we go to bed. (laughs) We all prayed that it would be a safe drive so we could go to bed. Now, if you think about what I'm trying to say is most people get caught up with the coming idea that, that the arrival is all there is. But Matthew goes on to tell us without a doubt that it is not about an event, an arrival. It is about an era. It is about the whole life of Christ. The Messiah coming was not just that he showed up in Bethlehem, but that he showed up to do what he came to do. And the book of Matthew fills in a lot of the details for us. The first coming of Christ, the Messiah, the King. Whew. Now, that's, that's cool. That, that's how he explains it. The last point I want to just highlight as, we, as we're looking at the golden candle that talks about all the prophecies. Well, Matthew does something that the other guys don't do very well. Now I'm talking about Mark, Luke, and John, the other gospel writers. Uh, Matthew tells us what I call the excerpts from the King. We now know that the the facet that he's painting for us about the coming Messiah is that he's going to be a ruler. He's going to be the leader. He's going to be the one triumphant. And so then he tells us by giving us the words of the triumphant one, the very speeches. Now, if you were to turn on your uh, documentary, normally you're going to have somebody give you the history of the person, but they're also going to give you quotes from the person. They're going to give you, in today's vernacular, they'll give you a TV interview where this person said this or he said that, and especially if they don't like you, they'll try to get you when you said this and you said this in contradiction. Okay, but what Matthew does is that he gives us speeches that the king, the one who came, gave over his lifetime. Now, for all of you that are following along, Jesus has been in relative obscurity for the first 30 years of his life. At the age of 30, he, gets, he meets John the Baptizer, and I believe he's ordained to the priestly ministry. And he is going to now offer up himself, the Lamb of God, because he's the only one worthy. He's, a, he's in the lineage of, of Melchizedek. He's, he's a priest after that order. And so he's going to offer up himself. That was going to happen on the, on the, uh, on the true Yom Kippur. On the Day of Atonement, the Best Good Friday, the day of the Passover in Jerusalem. Jesus was going to do all of that, and he had three years of ministry to try to get the good news out. During those three years, he was going to make known the tidings of great joy to all kinds of people, but he did it in a veiled way. If he would have told you everything, then he wouldn't have accomplished why he came. You see, the reason why Matthew tells us that he is the king is because he conquered An enemy that no earthly king could conquer. What enemy was that? The enemy of death. And so when you realize that he becomes king of kings and lord of lords because he rose from the grave because he had conquered death, death could not hold its prey. Jesus, my Lord. He's the ruler that can even take care of that. And we already knew that because in John chapter 11, we knew that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But Matthew is telling us he's the king. He's the king even over death. And that's why you see his words even on the the cross where it's over his head. King of the Jews. Jesus says it's paid in full. Matthew records all of these words for us. Now, I just want to highlight just a couple of them for you. Uh, if you. If you know about Jesus, he began in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. His first speech, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. When I was talking about this sermon to somebody else that, that uh, hadn't heard anything much yet here, they were like, so what? Why are you talking about the second coming? Are you getting it confused with the first coming? And what I'm trying to help you guys to see is that if you don't see the package deal, then you're going to miss it when you're coming into Christmas this year. If Christmas is only that God gave a gift from heaven and he was put in a manger, you know, that's great. But you realize that it's not just that event, it's the era. It is the whole package deal that says this Jesus who came is also going to come again. And how do I know that? Because King Jesus told us he's coming again. There was a certain thing that had to be taken care of, and then he was going to show up a second time. So if you look at our text here, this is some of the quotes, uh, that the kingdom of God is near. And then if you go on a few of the other passages, he, t- he tells you that the kingdom, uh, in, in Matthew 6, verse 10, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know about that verse? Jesus was teaching us about the kingdom. When you pray, you pray that God's kingdom is going to manifest itself, that the king is going to take his rightful place. If you go on to the end of that chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be taken care of." That's your food, your drink, your raiment, your clothing, all that kind of your shelter. God takes care of you if you're his. Do you see being a part of the family of God? Now, when you look a little bit further, uh, he says in in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everybody that parrots these words is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, only the ones who actually have the evidences of it, the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I can take you to quite a few other places, uh, but Jesus uh, is is saying this statement again in Matthew 10 again. He says, I proclaimed it to you again. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is at hand. And then he, he says about John the Baptist, I can take you all the way through, but I want to now jump to the end. Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. Remember, from the very beginning, the angel told Joseph that you're going to name him Yeshua. You're going to name him Jesus. You're going to name him, basically, the New Testament word for Joshua. You're going to name him this. Why? Because he will do what? Save his people from their sin. That's why it's not just an event, it's not just the birth where the angel said, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. It wasn't just that Jesus showed up, it was that Jesus was going to conquer. And that's why it's so cool when you realize this whole understanding that the kings, the excerpts from the king are, are communicated, that when you're trusting in him, when you're resting in Christ alone, you can find out many more texts, but I want to take you now to, to this one in Matthew 24 and 25. Including in 23. So, if you have your Bibles, this is considered the uh, Olivet Discourse. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, verse 23, chapter 23, verse 2. And the scribes and the Pharisees they sit on Moses' seat. So do uh, and they uh, so do and observe whatever they tell you. But do they work? Uh, but do not the works that they do? For they preach, but they do not practice. And they do all these kind of weird things. And so in verse 37 of that chapter, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's talking about the country there, the people of God. And he says, you guys killed the prophets. And you stoned those that were sent to help. How often I would have gathered you, your children together, like a hen gathering her brood under her wings. And you are not willing. He looks at the people there. He's not, I mean, you can see the stones. From the Mount of Olives, you can see the Temple Mount, but you can also see some of the surrounding places where people would live. And he's just basically saying, you people, you claim to be the people of God. And you can hear almost a weeping aspect. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's kind of an interesting twist here. Because they've just said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when he showed up for Palm Sunday. So he says, you're not going to see me again until you're starting to realize that I'm the true one. You thought I was the one when I was coming in on the donkey, when I was coming into Jerusalem. You thought I was going to be the ruler. You thought I was the one that was going to take down the government of tyranny. And then you were so disappointed. He says, you will not see me again until something changes. Now this is Jesus telling us that there's going to be a second part to his coming there's going to be a coming again now when you look a little further in chapter 24 when they left the temple uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him and, and said uh, to point out to him the buildings of the temple and he answered them and he said you see all these don't you truly I say to you there will not be one left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Right now, the reason why I'm saying that this is significant to us is that they all knew about the first coming. But the first coming, even though the redemption was anticipated, it had to be completed and then the will of God also has to make it applied. If you get that, then you can see you can't pull one apart from the other. God laid the foundation. Jesus finally came, and then he was hoisted up on the cross. He paid it in full, and then it gets applied to hearts. This is so cool when the people are saying, Jesus, what are you talking about now? And they ask him the three questions. They ask him literally about the stones in the building. You know, we're, we're right here. Tell us more. We, want to, don't, we don't want to be left out. But then he secondly asks him, when is the sign of your coming? And this means that the people there, the disciples had already been told by Jesus that he was going to die. They had a tough time believing it. But now they're asking him, so if this is going to fall, then when are you going to come back and help us? We're looking for some sign. We're looking for some explanation. This is hard for us to grasp. And then he says, then they ask him, what's the end game? And you know, what's the final movie look like? Now, that's pretty cool when you start to realize some of this text. Now, the rest of the chapter is Jesus answering some of those questions. You can see the excerpts from the king if you'll read the rest of Matthew. But I want to highlight for you, when he gets down to verses uh, 30. Uh, Actually, it's there in verses... uh, uh, I'll start there in verse 20, or verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. These are excerpts exactly from Christ. Let the one who is at the housetop go down. Uh, he says, let the one on the housetop not go down to take his take what's in his house. And let not the one who is in the field go back to get his coat. For alas, the woman who is pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, he says, Pray that your flight might not be in the bad weather or on a Sabbath day, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world unto now, no, and it will never will be. And if those days wouldn't be cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, what I'm trying to get at is I'm hoping your interest is piqued about the second coming. Jesus was drawing the disciples' attention to not just what he was going to do at the cross, but to what, the, what was going to happen at the cross was going to be applied to them for their future and also for ours. He says something great is going to happen. Things are not going to just be magically fixed just because there's going to be salvation. But my agenda is going to take place. And that's why if you go down to our uh, text that we had in verses 30 and 31... He's, after the fig tree message, then he ends, or right before the fig tree, he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. That's awesome. And verse 31, And he will send out his angels with the loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. If you look at the picture that's in front of you, I hope you'll see it every one of the days you come to, to church during the Advent season. The trumpet blast is going to take place. What's going to happen when the trumpet blast takes place? That's not a trick question. Do you have your Bible in front of you? Do you have the verse behind me? The loud trumpet's going to call... Uh, the loud trumpet is going to happen, and then what happens next? Just read it with me, if you will. He says, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's what's going to happen. Did you have to get your favorite author and get your book off your shelf to be able to figure out how prophecy is going to work? I want you to know you've got to first go to the primary source, and that's why we look at the words of Jesus. These golden prophecies, they're golden clues. I'm going to make the application here. Uh, today, I'm not trying to resolve everything about premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. I'm not trying to do that. What I'm trying to tell you is where the Westminster Confession comes in and where I come in, and I hope where you come in, is it clearly says that we believe in one of the fundamentals of the faith that Christ is coming again. We sing that song. It may be morning, it may be noon, it may be evening, it may be soon. Coming again. Are you ready? There's a lot of things that occupy our attention. Some of us are really consumed because of health. Some of us are really consumed because communism is on the, on the expanse. Some of us are really consumed because we look at a justice system that seems to be selective. We really look consumed because those of us that have lived a few years, we remember when it used to be a little different than it was for Christianity in this culture. And we can see that the path is not moving towards Christianity, it's moving away from Christianity. It's really tough that even today, I'm talking to somebody in church who talked about someone who got fired because they put a Christmas card on their bulletin board at a secular school. And there happened to be a Muslim student in the class who complained. It's hard to believe that this is where we are. But if you realize that this is not the end, The end. If you look at the text, there's going to be signs when Jesus shows up. But the end is going to be. uh, I think I can take it to that one verse there. I want to finish with that. The end is when the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And that is going to be said in. Is it verse 32? Or verse 31? And He'll send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds of heaven. And then he mentions the fig tree. And then he says, no man knows the day or the hour. Um, And he talks about two men walking up a hill. uh, But he says that the gospel is going to be taken to the ends of the earth. And that's really what we're anticipating. I'm going to pick this up in the next sermon when we look at Mark. Because Mark does parallel some of these things. But my application to you is, the people like Matthew that had had 400 silent years, they didn't have new revelation. They just had a Bible. They had scrolls to hang on to. I think Matthew actually clung to them pretty well. But he had to navigate through the world being a tax collector, just taking a job, until he met Jesus. Here you are. You may have come through this world just meandering through, taking whatever job was available, pursuing whatever dream you had. But when Jesus meets you and he calls you by name and he says, Follow me, it should be different. And the whole idea there from that point on is is Matthew is, is caught up with the coming of the Christ. He's now seeing that Christ did come. And now he's telling us more than almost anybody else about what the Christ said about his coming again. Do you think this is important? This is not supposed to create enemies out of brothers in Christ. But this is supposed to heighten our awareness that our eyes are not supposed to be fixed on just what passes or what doesn't pass in legislature or who's elected and who's not. Our eyes need to be focused on Christ. He is coming again. The clues in the New Testament are just like the golden oldies of the Old Testament. There are numerous, there's hundreds of them in in, in the 27 books, and they tell us that this is not the end. That there is something more. Do you know Christ? This Jesus that we want you to know that's gonna come again is not gonna come in humility. When he came the first time he went, his goal was to go to the cross. When he came in humility, he emptied himself of his kingly crown and his his royal decrees, and he emptied himself, as the scripture says, the kenosis. And as he emptied himself, he was even born into this world. He had to to drink mother's milk. He had to live in a little town of Nazareth. He had to be birthed, not in a hospital, but in a little town, probably in, in a stable right out there, probably in a cave outside of Bethlehem. This is not what you would expect for the king of kings. But he came the first time in humility. Do you understand it? The angels were so excited when he showed up and did it. That was the good angels. The bad angels, they were already ticked off. (coughs) I believe that was the reason why Satan fell from heaven. He looked at Jesus and he said, No way. I don't want to follow a God who's going to humble himself like that and become man. That you would make them a little lower than the angels? But the angels that saw the plan of God, who understood the prophetic promises, those angels, they couldn't hold their peace in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God. He has begun this era. The king has come. There'll be peace on earth for those who know this king. The cross is there for us. That's where the peace comes from. But I also tell you that Jesus said that that doesn't end it. That pays the price. But he's going to go, prepare a place for us, and come again. That where he is, we may be also. It changes the way you live. It changes what you value, your priorities. And I pray it will make you more of an evangelist. This year... You don't need to go around and tell everybody that Santa Claus is coming to town. Nice tune to it. Who do I want you to say is coming to town? Jesus. And he's not going to come to the little town of Bethlehem. That's why the song has a second verse. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. Lord Jesus, I thank you that the message of the gospel includes... Uh, not simply that Jesus died and was buried and that he rose again, but Lord, it also tells us that he ascended to heaven and he's going to return for us. Lord, I thank you that it takes the same kind of faith for the Old Testament people to look forward to the coming of Christ as it does for us to look forward to the second coming of Christ. Lord, but we have the historical narrative. We have the record that you have already accomplished what you said you were going to do in this this, uh, bifurcation of the coming. Lord, Matthew might have thought that you were going to come in glory and you were going to sit on the throne of David and you were going to do it all at once in one lifetime. But Lord, you saw fit, and the prophecies bear witness to us that you were going to come in humility, and then you were going to come later in glory. Lord, when that day comes, when the trumpet sounds, I pray that we may not uh, that we wouldn't we wouldn't be distracted. There's several illustrations that Matthew gave about the virgins who were prepared, and there was the fig tree that bore fruit. There's lots of things that challenge us to be ready, but the being ready. Is because we value what's coming next. Time with you. Lord, I pray that as we go through this Advent season, that our hearts will be strangely warmed. That when we come to church, we'll spend time in your presence and be more focused on that than whatever presence we're going to receive or give. And Lord, I also pray that you might give us eyes of faith to see what's on the horizon, the anticipation of something even better when the tear ducts in our bodies are going to not be replaced because we'll get a new heavenly body. For to be with the Lord is to have the days of tribulation and trouble behind us. Lord, I thank you today that you answer prayers and that you've seen us through difficulties. But I thank you even more that you've promised to take us away from the difficulties in your glorious return. Even so, Lord let me join with John in saying, come quickly.